cultivate our motivation. And when you look out at the evening sky, and you can see all the stars that we know are light years away, and that what we're seeing when we see them is the past, we're seeing what happened many, many, many years ago, but we're only learning of it now. And in around all those different suns and planets and so on, very good chance that there's very form, various forms of life, not necessarily the ones that depend on water to live, but other living beings from different realms whose karma creates the kind of bodies that can live in those kind of environments. And all those sentient beings are involved in their own troubles and their own problems right now, all wanting to be happy, not wanting to suffer. And in all those various universes and solar systems, who knows if the Buddha Dharma even exists there. Because a Buddha appearing and living in those places depends on the karma of those sentient beings. So do they even have any opportunity to come in contact with the Buddha's liberating teachings? Or are they just living on automatic, following the afflictions, creating more and more karma, just like many sentient beings on planet Earth? And sometimes just like us when we're living on automatic. creating the causes for one rebirth after another after another with no end in sight because no possibility of encountering the teachings, let alone hearing them, practicing them, realizing them, and so on. So why we have this precious human life that compared to beginningless and endless time is less than even a finger snap in endurance. Let's take advantage of it and make our lives meaningful by generating bodhicitta 
and developing an understanding of emptiness. Okay. So last week we we talked about the link of consciousness, the third link, and uh, we talked about it in terms of the Sanskrit tradition. And here, you know, whenever we have a name of something, it, like consciousness, okay, consciousness can mean a whole bunch of different things in very different situations. So. The when we say third link consciousness, it's referring to a specific moment of consciousness or a specific type of consciousness. So don't get confused by thinking that each term refers to all the instances that go by that term. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, In the Sanskrit tradition, consciousness refers to both the causal consciousness, the consciousness that the uh, karmic seed is placed on after it's created, and it also refers to the resultant consciousness that uh, ripens, that is the first moment of the next life after that karma has ripened and uh, propelled us into another life. Okay, So those two moments of consciousness that this link refers to uh, are separated by some time. Okay, And that's just the way they defined it. Yeah, they, Of course, they say there's a continuum between the causal consciousness and the resultant consciousness. But the way... Consciousness is defined in terms of the third link consciousness. It's two specific moments. The moment that the karma is placed on, you know, after it's created, and the first moment of the next life when that karma has ripened and and propelled us into the next life. Okay. Now, that was according to the Sanskrit tradition. Now we're going to go according to the Pali tradition, where it is a little bit different. Okay. Oh, different. Why Why is it different? Why don't they say the same thing? Did the Buddhist teaching start out one way and then somebody changed it and made it another way? Or did Buddha teach different things at different times? Can you merge the two explanations together? Uh, you know, what's the history, how they, they develop. Okay, so all those questions, I have them too. And I don't know the answer. Okay, so we're, we are all wandering around in the darkness of ignorance. Yeah, I've studied the, the 12 links, in, you know, several times. 
And I cannot say that I understand everything about them, let alone the difference between the uh, Sanskrit tradition and the Pali tradition, how they describe these. Okay. It would be a great theme for a PhD thesis to develop the, you know, research the history of how, you know, these two systems, uh, you know, first explained the 12 links and then how it developed over time and so on and so forth. And that's what I've really encountered in working on this series of, of books for His Holiness, is there's a whole lot of themes for, for PhD theses here. Okay. I have no desire for a PhD degree. Okay. But for people who do, I can give you a lot of topics. Okay. <laughs> so let's look at the poly, the consciousness according to the poly tradition. Okay. So also here, you have the suit in each tradition, you have the sutra explanation of the link and the commentary explanation of the link. And in, uh, you know, in the bit that I studied about the Pali tradition, um, people like Bhikkhu Bodhi, Bhikkhu Bodhi and Bhikkhu Analyo make a big difference. They're always saying, according to the sutra, it says this. According to the commentary, it says this. Because it's not always exactly the same. As we can see between the commentators, uh, you know, in our own tradition, the way they lay out different things. There's big differences, okay? And it would be very interesting, Another this is another PhD thesis topic, to research some of these ideas from in the sutras and in the tantras and how they appear there in the, uh, you know, the canonical texts that came directly from the Buddha and then how the commentaries explain these things. And, you know, is there some difference? Because you know? the Tibetans rely much more on the commentaries than they do on the sutras directly. Yeah. So anyway, there's, there's a lot to learn and a lot to figure out. Okay, so Pali, consciousness according to the Pali tradition. So according to the sutra explanation... Third link consciousness refers specifically to the consciousness that initiates the new life, the rebirth linking consciousness that follows the death consciousness and connects the mind stream from the previous life to the new life. So when you look at the Pali, um, Pali Abhidharma, you know, they have, they divide the consciousness into all these different ones and how many moments there are of each one in each continuum is totally mind-blowing, okay? So, you know, it refers to the consciousness that initiates the new life, the rebirth-linking consciousness, okay? So that's the consciousness that links from the death consciousness, which is another consciousness that's from the previous life, this is the one that links the death consciousness to the consciousness in the next life. 
which uh, is, uh, it's not exactly name and form because they define name, have it, their own explanation for name and form, as does the, the Sanskrit tradition. But it links the two, okay? So, you know, I sit there and wonder, well, why don't they have a consciousness that the karmic seed is placed on? Yeah, why don't they specifically designate that? I have no idea, yeah, unless it's it's just something that's so taken for granted that it's not mentioned. Okay, so anyway, this, the third link consciousness is illusory, like an echo, a light, a seal impression, or a shadow. It does not come here from the previous life, yet it arises due to the causes in previous lives. Now we go, wait a minute. There's a consciousness continuum. Didn't it come here from a previous life? Are you saying that consciousness ends and another consciousness begins without any causes? No, they're not saying that. Okay. Because it says it arises due to the causes in the previous lives. But what they're accentuating is, and I think this is true in the Sanskrit tradition, is, you know, when we're born, we have the five aggregates of a particular realm. Okay, so right now we have the five aggregates of the human realm. When we die, the five human aggregates cease. And then if you're born, let's say, as a deva, then you are born with the five aggregates of a deva. Okay, so the aggregates of a human being, the aggregates of a, of a deva are different. Yeah? Because they, they're, they're the product of different karmas. But, you know, the aggregates of the deva arise from, they're a con, you know, they're connected in some way to the present aggregates as a human being. Okay. So the Sanskrit tradition talks about, emphasizes just the continuum that goes from one life to the next. But it's also true, what I just explained, there's two different sets of, of, of aggregates. Yeah. But the, those aggregates are related to each other. At least the mental ones are. The bodies in the two, in the two lifetimes are made out of different substances. Yeah. The deva body is not a con- continuity of the human body. Yeah, continuity of the human body is ashes and the worm's lunch and all these kinds of things. Okay. Okay. So that new consciousness that arises, it's illusory, like an echo, a light, a seal impression, or a shadow. Okay. So it's emphasizing that... You know, we tend to think of consciousness, there it is. And especially in the Sanskrit, oh, the consciousness goes from one lifetime to the another. And we picture it there, one consciousness, inherently existent, 
you know, yeah, it's a river, but there's something permanent and truly existent in that river that goes along. Okay. And just in our mind, by saying continuum, our mind tends to make it very solid. Whereby saying it in this way, you know, a shadow, a light, an echo, we get more of the idea of the consciousness is not something fixed. You know, it's changeable. You can't pin it down. I remember when I, uh, the first book, it must have been Buddhism for Beginners, and uh, I asked one um, Theravada monk that I knew to write an endorsement for it. And he read the book, and he um, he wrote to me, and he said, you know, your explanations of the con- continuity of the consciousness is not what the Buddha taught. It, so- it sounds like a soul. It sounds like you're talking about a soul that goes from one life to the next. And it's not that, he said. Yeah? And I found that very interesting because I was explaining it just like our tradition explains it, yeah? But it does somehow give, can give the impression that you're talking about something that doesn't change so much. That's one thing that goes from one life to the next, kind of like a soul. Now, of course, the Sanskrit tradition doesn't mean that. But, you know, when you talk about continuum, it can sound like that to some people. Yeah? And I wrote back to him, and I tried to explain kind of the the idea. But it's very interesting in the in the Pali tradition. Um, I think it was in a previous volume. We went through it already, unless it's coming up. But um, there, uh, Geshe Dadal translated. One sutra, I think it was, it must have been a Sanskrit sutra, because he translated it from Tibetan, um, at, where it was talking about going from one life to the next. And it's like, uh, one of the analogies that really, that I think is quite good is it's like a seal or a stamp. Yeah. When you stamp something. Yeah. There's nothing that goes from the stamp to the piece of paper. Yeah? Or if you're stamping the clay, you know, you could say, well, the ink goes. Well, take the example of some kind of seal in in clay. You stamp it. There's nothing from the seal that goes to the clay. But the impression exists in the clay. And so they use that to describe how uh, karma, karmic seeds, are carried from one life to the next. Yeah? So they really avoid this thing of, of making it sound very solid. You know, like there's a seed. No, it's like, you know, there's a seal that makes an impression but there's nothing that you can point to that goes, you know? Which I find 
very good. And, you know, it loosens things up for me when I think of things like that, you know, in that way. The consciousness of the next life is not the same as the previous life's consciousness. Yeah, because one is a human being and the example, the other one is a deva. It's not the same. Nor is it totally unrelated. So they're not two different consciousnesses that have no relationship between, you know, the, the two. If they were identical consciousnesses, one would not cause the other. If they were totally unrelated, there would not be a continuum. So if there were one consciousness, yeah, then one couldn't be the cause of the other. Now, of course, the Sanskrit tradition explains that as one moment of consciousness produces the next moment of consciousness, okay? But if you just sometimes talk consciousness and you say it's the same consciousness, then it does sound like a soul. And if that's the case, one cannot produce the other. On the other hand, if they were totally distinct, if we thought human, the human, you know, consciousness is over here and the deva consciousness is here and they have no relationship, then they couldn't be a continuum and you couldn't talk about the continuity of the karma going from one life to the next. This refutation, what does it sound like? What's the refutation sound like? If it's identical, you have this con- consequence. If it's uh, unrelated, you have this consciousness consequence. Where do you, else do you find that? Yeah, when we do the fourfold investigation of, you know, what is the I? Yeah. So it's interesting, isn't it? There it is that whole thing. If two things are identical, they can't be causes. If two things are totally separate, they can't be related. Exactly like in the Sanskrit tradition. Okay. So you find, you know, these these little things that the traditions share that, uh, you know, nobody kind of sits there and points out and goes, hey, look at that, you know. But you're reading it, it's like, oh, boy, hmm. Yeah, who thought of that first? Well, maybe, you know, it was all coming from the Buddha and it was drawn out differently in, in different scriptures. Okay, so in the new life, consciousness simultaneously gives rise to the mental aspect of existence, which is called name, okay, and animates the new physical form, okay? So I don't know, simultaneous, it makes it sound like the two are existing together, and actually, we will, as we continue on, it does say that, uh, well, we'll get to that, but it talks about different kind of causes and uh, the consciousness and name of name and form can exist simultaneously, you know, according to that system. Uh, if you've studied 
the Satantrika, Satantrika. Yeah, they talk about different kind of causes, and it's what they're describing in the Pali is that whole thing that you find in Satantrika. You remember studying that, and like they talk about simultaneous causes. Yeah, the Vibhasaka. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's some similarities between Vibhasaka, Satantrika, and, uh, and the Pali tradition. And, but there's also a lot of differences. So the Tibetans t- tend to say, oh, the Pali tradition, that's just another kind of Vibhasaka, Satantrika, and that's not correct. Okay. So in scientific terms, for a human rebirth, consciousness links with the fertilized ovum, making it become the body of a living being. Name consists of the five omnipresent mental factors, feeling, discrimination, intention, contact, and attention. Now we go, wait a minute, what? In the Sanskrit tradition, yeah, name refers to the consciousness in the next life. Okay, well, there's different, but there's, you know, there's overlaps and there's differences here. Okay, so, yeah. And it really emphasizes, too, that for a human rebirth, the consciousness links with the fertilized ovum, making it the body of a living being. So you may have a fertilized ovum, But that is not a sentient being. It's the presence of consciousness that makes a sentient being there, not just the the conjoined sperm and egg. Okay? So name consists of the five omnipresent mental factors, feeling, discrimination, intention, contact, and attention, which are all found uh, well, feeling and discrimination are their own aggregates, the second and third of the five aggregates, and intention, contact, and attention belong in the fourth aggregate. Got it? Okay. So in addition to this developmental process, consciousness conditions name and form whenever we cognize an object. Okay, so what we will find in the 12 links, and this refers to the Sanskrit tradition too, is when they describe each link, they can describe it in very, very different situations that make it very confusing when we're trying to learn them. Okay, so for example, when we talk about the development of a human being, We have consciousness, and it produces name and form, and then we the the you know the body develops, and you get the um, six sources, and so on. Okay, so you get this developmental thing, or uh, or by by you know, but kind of like biological development of you know how the body grows and the mind uh, increases. You know, the mental functions increase with that. And you also have the explanation of how consciousness uh, arises when we cognize objects. 
okay? And there it's talking about the six consciousnesses, yeah? So what are the six? Visual, auditory, olfactory, gustatory, tactile, mental, okay? Okay, so there's, there's the developmental perspective, and then there's the cognitive perspective of how you talk about consciousness and name and form and, and the six sources and contact and everything else. Okay, so the five factors of name depend on consciousness and cannot occur without it. So that makes sense. You can't have feeling discrimination intention, attention, and contact without having, uh, you know, the primary consciousnesses. Yeah. Even in deep sleep, fainting, coma, or meditative absorption, consciousness is present, although it is a subtle type of consciousness that is not aware of the external world. Hmm. Hmm. What is that? Yeah, as we go on, uh, the Pali, you will find the Pali tradition talks about the Bhavanka, which is this subtle consciousness that every time there's not a manifest consciousness, it arises and it keeps the continuity of consciousness going. But it's subtle and we're not aware of it. And it's it manifests in fainting, coma, well, here in meditative absorption, deep sleep. Yeah. Does it sound like something else you've heard about? Not exactly the same, but kind of. What's that? Yeah, the fundamental clear light mind. Yeah, it sounds a little bit like, not totally, but mm, what an interesting idea that is. Where did that come from? The Pali Abhidharma explains that consciousness and name and form are co-nascent, meaning that they arise simultaneously like fire and its heat. In addition, consciousness and name and form are mutual conditions in that each conditions and supports the other, like two sticks leaning on each other to stand upright. Okay, when we started learning about different kinds of conscious, uh, different kinds of causes, and this is this is like the uh, Sarvastivada take on it. So it is Mula Sarvastivada also. Um, yeah, and they talk about these co-nascent causes, and usually, you know, causes. The cause has to cease for the result to arise. And here they're talking co-nascent, which means they arise simultaneously. Okay. Okay. Like fire and its heat. Okay. So when you talk about one moment of fire, the heat that is with that one moment of fire is simultaneous with it. Yeah. That fire can also act as a cause for the heat in the next moment of the fire. Yeah? 
So it could be talking, it says conason, but, you know, if you dig deeper, it may be talking about different moments of fire, different moments of heat. Yeah, or maybe they just mean, well, you know, in terms of fire and heat, they have, you know, at one point they do have to arise together because the nature of fire is hot and burning. So if you don't have heat, you're not going to have fire. Yeah, heat is a quality of fire, so that has that moment of, of heat has to be simultaneous with the fire. Yeah. The next moment of fire yeah, is gonna have its own heat. Yeah. Does one moment of fire produce the heat of the next moment? Physicists, what do you say? We have two of them. <laughs> um, what, I'm sorry, what do you mean by heat? Because the physics <laughs> definition of heat would be different. So what do you mean by heat? Oh, what are the different definitions of heat? Well, when oh, we talk about heat within a physics context, it's the, the transfer of thermal energy, and I don't think that's what's meant here, and so I can't a- answer your question. Ah. Okay, well, it just means hot. <laughs> yeah? Yeah? <laughs> The transfer of thermal energy. So heat is is movement. It involves movement. It, something's transferring. Uh, sure, sure. On a microscopic scale, there's. I mean, it's a different way of. It's not our normal everyday definition of heat. But so that's where it's tricky. And that thermal properties within physics, there are very specific definitions. And mm. so even hot isn't a word we would really use in physics. It's. Hot compared to something. Yeah. Can, can physics talk just about as normal people talk about heat? Can it talk about heat? Or <laughs> I mean, uh, do, not, do, not do, this do physicists ever feel hot? <laughs> hot, compared to, hot compared to normal? Huh? But, but that's, that's a perception, right? That's not then how we talk about like thermal energy. That would be different. A thermal energy. <laughs> yeah, okay, so this is actually a good example that when you use one word, you can be talking about totally different things in totally different contexts, in totally different frameworks. And you have to have the framework and the context to understand what in the world's going on. Yeah, and so that's, I think, we can use here too when we can't pinpoint everything in the way that we would like to. Yeah. Because, you know, hot. Hot is is an attribute of fire. Everybody knows that. Except maybe the physicists. (laughs) (laughs) You know? (laughs) I thought they went to college and were smart. (laughs) They don't know what hot means. Yeah, it's a good example. 
Okay. Did you explain the notion of thermal energy to the nuns when you taught them? Did they understand? Or did they ask you also what it was a, hot meant? It was a wonderful example because um, it was co-taught. So myself and the other physicist, we weren't always using exactly the same terminology. The oh. nuns pointed that out. Oh. And... <laughs> We're, and we're asking us for very consistent, coherent, specific definitions for all of these terms. Oh. Um, and for us, that's in the equations, I would say. You know, we don't necessarily uh-huh. use words to describe these, but I can say, well, this is how it relates to these other things in a mathematical way. And the definition is perhaps in that relationship. So for me, it was very helpful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, meaning in the mathematical relationship explaining the relate uh the math explaining the relationship of different things. Yeah, I mean you don't find that in the sutras. <laughs> but you know, why not? Why not? You know, it's a way of communicating, so and it's a way of explaining things. Okay. Okay. So, meaning, Kone said, meaning that they rise simultaneously like fire and its heat in certain contexts. (laughs) Or maybe do you say fire and it's cold? Well, no, you don't say that because cold is not a separate thing. It's just a lack of heat. So, yeah, you, a cold is not a thing. That's interest, an interesting, and that, that's science, isn't it? Yeah. It's just a lack of heat. In addition, consciousness and name and form are mutual conditions in that each conditions and supports each other, like two sticks leaning on each other to stand upright. Okay, now usually when we hear mutual conditions, again in Buddhism, you know, your alarm goes off. Wait a minute, the cause doesn't, the cause creates the effect, but the effect doesn't create the cause, so how can you say that they're mutual conditions? Yeah, well, the one way you would explain it is, you know, one moment of uh, this produces uh, Yeah, moment one of this produces uh, moment one of this, but they don't, those two don't uh, exist at the same time because the result always comes after the cause. But that cause can then uh, create moment two of this one, which then creates moment two of this one, but the two moment twos aren't, don't exist at the same time. Okay. So you can have something like that. But here, just, you know, the, when they, you hear mutual conditions, it sounds like, you know, that they, yeah, just at the same time are, are conditioning each other. Yeah. So I don't know. You'd have to really dig into the Sarvastivada Abhidharma and see what, what do they actually mean by mutual condition. Okay. Here it explains it like the two supporting each other. Yeah, that you need both. And uh, certainly, you know, Sanskrit tradition talks a lot 
about mutual dependence. But it doesn't necessarily say, you know, uh, mutual dependence, the two things exist at the same time. Yeah. With the you know, the way you would say mutual dependence in Sanskrit tradition is, um, okay, in terms of causal dependence, the cause produces the result, okay? But in terms of the cause, the seed being labeled a cause and the sprout being considered a result, those two are designated to mutually dependent on each other. So that's what the, you know how Sanskrit tradition talks about mutual, mutual conditions. Okay. While the sutras speak of six types of consciousness, emphasizing that each type of consciousness is responsible for cognizing its own corresponding object, consciousness also performs another role. It maintains the continuity of an individual's existence without any uh, within any given life from birth until death and then beyond. Oh, here's the Pali idea of continuum. Okay. It maintains the continuity of an individual's existence from birth to death and then beyond. Mm-hmm. It carries with it memories, karmic seeds, habits, and latencies, connecting different lives and making them a series such that future lives relate to previous ones. Okay, now we get it. Yeah? Different ways of describing things, huh? Okay, now let's go. So that's the third link, consciousness. But it is described in different ways, you know, and it makes us think when we hear these different descriptions. Okay, now we're going to go on to name and form, or nama rupa, yeah, which is the fourth link. So name and form afflict transmigrating beings because they hold the object of clinging, the body. Okay, so actually the body is form, okay? Name is, refers to consciousness, yeah? Well, not, yeah, well, we're coming to that, yeah? Consciousness and certain mental factors, okay? So, uh, but again, it's because there's the consciousness that the body um, you know, becomes the body of a sentient being. Yeah. Without the consciousness, uh, that body is is not a sentient being. Yeah, and it doesn't experience pain or pleasure without the mind. So that's an interesting thing to think about. What is it that experiences pain? What is it that experiences pleasure? Yeah, we talk about physical pain. Yeah, like you have a headache. Yeah, right? So you have a headache. So my head hurts. But the head, without the presence of consciousness in the body, does not hurt. 
Yeah. I mean, a corpse doesn't have a headache. Okay, a corpse doesn't feel pain. So what is it that actually experiences pain? Yeah, we, we talk about it being the body that experiences the pain. But the consciousness has to be there. And I think it's actually the consciousness that experiences the pain. But we call it physical pain, and we say, you know, my leg hurts, or my head hurts, or my stomach hurts. Okay? Now, what we're cognizing is a physical sensation. But the sensation doesn't exist by itself without a consciousness apprehending it. Yeah? So, unless there's a consciousness apprehending hunger, we don't feel hungry, you know, there's not hunger, is there? Yeah. So how, you know, this is something to, to really think about in your meditation. You know, when, when you have physical pain, is it the body that hurts? Or is that pain, how is that pain related to consciousness? It's something apprehended by consciousness. Yeah. But it's experienced by consciousness. I mean, pain is the, the second aggregate, the aggregate of feeling. Yeah, which is a mental aggregate. But it's a physical sensation. But it's the mind that's feeling it. Anyway, it's really something to, to think about, you know. When we say, I have a headache, what? Who, what is actually experiencing the headache? And where actually does the headache exist? Yeah. And when you, or when you have, you stub your toe, that pain is in your toe, isn't it? Yeah. It feels like it's in your toe. As if you open up your toe, there's pain inside there. But of course, none of us, you know, assume that if you open up your toe, you're going to see pain. So where, where exactly is the pain and what is apprehending it? Okay, interesting thing to, to you know. Yeah, when your legs start hurting during retreat, yeah, investigate that. Okay. Name refers to the four mental aggregates. This is Sanskrit tradition. Feeling, discrimination, mental fat, miscellaneous factors, and primary consciousnesses. So those four mental aggregates. Yeah. And form is the body. So there you have the five aggregates. Okay. One is physical. Four are mental. The link of name and form exists during the time after 
the link of resultant consciousness and before the link of the six sources. So here, all those are consecutive. They're cause and effect. They don't exist at the same time. Okay. Third link consciousness is a condition for form because this body becomes a living being only when consciousness is present. But does your consciousness hurt? Yeah, my big toe hurts. Does the toe hurt? If there's no consciousness, the toe doesn't hurt. Does the mind hurt? We initially go, you know, then does the toe hurting in the mind hurt in the mind? And the scientists say, no, you're firing. You have neutrons firing. Is neutrons firing pain? Yeah. Neutrons firing is just physical, biological material doing something. Yeah, that's not the sensation of pain. It goes along, or pleasure, you know. When I say pain, it could be pleasure too. But it goes along with that sensation, but it is not that sensation. Yeah. So... You know, are the neurons, what's hurting when your big toe hurts? When you eat a meal and you feel full and satisfied, where does that, what is that pleasurable experience? Yeah, is it in the stomach? Do you open the stomach? You know, is it in the brain? Is it somewhere between the two? Yeah. Is it in the mind? Where does that, where is that? Okay, and what is it? Is it something mental? Is it something physical? When the name or mental aspect of this life ceases, the person's rebirth ends and the body remains a lifeless corpse. While the cognitive faculties remain after death, I think here it means the cognitive organs, you know, we still have our eyes and ears and, and you know, and the subtle uh, rods and cones that, you know, and, and what is it in your ears, the stirrups and... Hammer and stirrups, anvil and stirrups. You know, this is third grade biology, and I can't remember it, but you can't either. Yeah. (laughs) Who's the biologist in the crowd? Who? You. No? Well, okay, something something in the ear. Nobody remembers what it is. Anvil and stirrup? Okay. And then there's the, the cochlea in the, the center where you then kind of have the, the physical motion coupling to the, the nerves. Yeah. Yeah. So the physical motion hitting nerves, they're both material things. How come we hear things? Yeah. 
is the cochlea hearing things? The hammer and anvil and stirrup. 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 No, it's like the stirrup is on the horse and the anvil is. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, but you know. It's just because of the shapes of these things. But, uh, you know, it's an interesting experience to explore, you know, for, for yourself. Okay. So while the cognitive faculties remain after this, they cannot connect an object and the preceding moment of consciousness to produce cognition because consciousness is no longer associated with the body. The mental and physical aggregates, our minds and bodies of this life, are the polluted ripening result of karma. Okay? That doesn't mean the karma is the substantial cause of our body and mind. Substantial cause being the actual thing that transforms into the result. Yeah. It's, it's karma is the principal cause. It's going to throw the consciousness in or propel the consciousness into the body. Yeah. But the karma does not become the body and it does not become the consciousness. Okay. Mm. As such... The physical and mental aggregates, our minds and bodies of this life, are polluted, ripening result of karma. As such, they are produced by afflictions and karma. They are the basis of the dukkha we experience in the present life. And because of attachment to them, afflictions arise, creating more karma that results in future lives, future rebirths. So this is the problem, okay? Because of previous karma, uh, afflictions and karma, we got this body and mind, yeah? Which themselves are neutral. But because we are attached to this body, we are attached to the mind, to our ideas and feelings and everything. Because of that craving, craving is a form of attachment, the craving, the clinging, the grasping, the attachment to these things, yeah, then we create more karma to take more rebirths. Yeah. So it's quite interesting in your meditation, you know, look at the attachment to your body and the attachment to your mind. Okay. So when we talk about attachment to our body, you know, this, you can start with gross things like how you look. Yeah. Because people are attached to how they look. Yeah. We're attached to the shape of our body, whether you have hair or don't have hair, what color your hair is, whether it's curly or straight or coiled. You know, we're attached to all this kind of stuff. We're attached to the shape of our body. Yeah. 
this is a billion dollar, trillion dollar industry in the world. Yeah, to feed just how the body looks on the outside. We're not even talking about the inside, but just how it looks on the outside. The attachment is to that is an integral part of our economy. Yeah, that makes this world go round. And if people were not attached to their looks, yeah, the economy would completely fall apart. It's true, isn't it? It's true. Okay. So that's just the, the outside. Then we're attached to the inside of the body. But there we're not attached to how it looks. Yeah. The inside of our body, when we see it, we go, Bleh. I don't want to see that. It is ugly and stinky and smelly and slimy. And get it away from me as quick as I, as you possibly can. But on the outside, it has to look nice. Okay. Isn't this kind of relating to hypocrisy? <laughs> you know, hypocrisy, you're one way on the inside and you appear, appear another way on the outside. And that's exactly what the body is. It's like, I mean, yeah. If we didn't have skin, would what would you say walking around seeing everybody's bodies without their skin? Yeah, I mean, we'd all run away as we fast, as fast as we could, but we're taking our own, you know, our own cesspool of a body with us. Yeah. Okay, so the inner inside of the body, that's also another trillion dollar business in, you know, up making the economy go around. You know, health, health care. Yeah, and how many times we, you know, people putting so much of their life energy into developing machines to monitor various aspects of the inside of our body. Yeah. And how attached we are, not to how the inside looks, but how the inside feels whether there's pain or pleasure on the inside of the body. And we're attached regarding the inside of the body to what these test results are. What are test results? They're squiggles of ink on paper. Yeah, but certain squiggles put you into, you know, Ultimate paranoia. C-A-N-C-E-R. No, C-A-N-C-E-R. Six squiggles on your test result. It's like, Yeah? Interesting, isn't it? No symptoms. You're okay. But there's that, those squiggles. And we go, 
totally bonkers. Yeah, even though, yeah, what the inside of our body is not beautiful, and the C A N C E R doesn't make it any uglier or any more beautiful. It's just more biological material floating around in that sack. It's true, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we've gone through where Shantideva talks about that. Okay. So in the case of human rebirth, fourth link name and form refer to the five aggregates from the time just after conception, because that moment of conception is the resultant consciousness of the third link. So just after the five aggregates from the time just after conception until the time the five sense organs begin to develop. So that's when this link exists. Yeah, not, yeah, the the third link consciousness doesn't exist very long, okay? It very quickly goes into name and form. But name and form also, from the Sanskrit viewpoint, don't exist very long because when you get the development of the five sense organs, not the mental consciousness, but the five sense organs, so that, you know, the the fetus is able to uh, see, hear, smell, taste, and touch, then you're already getting into the, the fifth link of the six sources. Okay, now, how much can, can fetuses see? Yeah, their eyes are not open. But do they have any sight? Yeah, they have tactile consciousness. They have mental consciousness. They don't breathe. Can they, can they smell? Can they taste things? They get their food through, you know, through the umbilical cord. Can they hear things? They certainly sense the vibrations of the mother. Do they hear that? Or is it a tactile sensation of the vibrations? None of us know much. Yeah. But do they hear it or do they just feel the vibration physically? Huh? Yeah. Babies in the womb or out of the womb? There's been a whole bunch of research done on babies in the womb with being, um, you know, having music being played while the mother is close by. Mm-hmm. And that the babies will often... While the mother's them. close by. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Just delete that, okay? Um... So they've done studies where they play soothing music and the baby 
calms down. They yeah. play, you know, music that's more right. revved and there's responses. So mm-hmm. are they hearing it or is it vibration? I don't think we know enough yet. Yeah. And when the mother eats chili peppers, the babies respond too. But are they tasting that or is it a tactile sensation that they feel from it? I read two little reports sometime in the last year or so on NPR about both of these things that that was a review of a book called Flavor or something where they've studied and tested, uh, shown that babies or ch- small baby children have... Um, but this is after they're This is the after world. they're born, but that they like the things that their mother ate while they were in utero. Oh, so they've made a connection that 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 sort of familiarity yeah. of flavor goes or forward. Well, and, is it familiarity well, maybe. of flavor or of texture? Yeah, who or knows? Of nutrients? Who knows? Yeah, but the other know. thing that was really interesting that they're doing lots more studies on is they're studying to measure babies' cries in different languages. And that babies do cry in different tonal ways, like they were they were comparing yeah. English and German. Uh huh. That there was a, a a lilt in German. I can't remember whether that goes down or goes up, but they were tracking that the baby cries in a way that's different after they're born. After they're yeah. born. But again, does that, that come? Would, but does that come immediately? I mean, is that because they heard it when they were in utero? I don't know. No. But that's what they're trying to track. Yeah. I would think of it. But I mean, how much in, how much English did you hear before you started to cry? Not very much. <laughs> yeah. Which cries are they talking about? It says on month eight, week twenty-nine through thirty-two, the fetus can see and hear. Who says? Cleveland's uh, maternal clinic. <laughs> okay. I wonder if there's other people having other ideas. They say from the eighth week? Eighth month. Eighth month. Okay. You're, yeah, you're almost, yeah. You can, what, see and hear. Close the eyes, turn the head. That means they can open their eyes? Blink. What? But there's goo all around. <laughs> How can you open your eyes with all that goo in the womb? You know, yeah, I mean, like, if your whole face is in jelly and you open your eyes. Yeah. Okay. Do we really want to, yeah, be reborn? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So form is the embryo that begins to grow in the womb. It consists of the four great elements, earth, water, fire, and air. And the the forms derive from them, such as color, smell, and taste, and so forth. The four great elements are metaphorical designations for the different qualities of matter. Earth is the solid aspect, the property of resistance and hardness. Water is the fluid and cohesive aspect that enables things to stay together. Fire is the quality of heat and energy. And air represents mobility, contraction, and expansion. Beings in the formless realm 
lack a body and have only the seed of form. Okay, and that note says, this is from the sutra point of view. From the tantric perspective, beings in the formless realm still have a very subtle body, the subtlest wind that is one nature with the subtlest mind. Okay, so name refers to the four mental aggregates because they engage with objects with the help of names and terms. Just after conception, only the mental and tactile consciousnesses arise because in the embryo, only the mental and tactile uh, faculties are present. So, okay, so they're saying... This is according to Jim Jampel Young's commentary on the treasure of knowledge. So they're saying that in the womb, of course, you know, they also differentiate different stages of the growth of, of the child in the womb. So it's not saying at what particular level. It's just saying in general, they only have mental and tactile consciousnesses. Yeah, in the embryo. But they divide, I mean, just like, you know, you have the fertilized ovum and the embryo and the fetus and the zygote and the, all these different terms for different stages. Yeah, then in the Buddhist, Buddhist scientists have different names for different stages of the growth. Yeah, but the word embryo here is not, specifically saying what it is, what stage. So it sounds like name and form cease, the aggregates cease, and then the sense sources arise? No. When they talk about name and form, they're talking about the the body and mind at a specific time. Okay? And at the time is after the, con the first moment of consciousness, when the consciousness is has entered the, the fertilized egg until the development of the five sense consciousnesses. So that period in the womb is what is called name and, name and form, according to the Sanskrit tradition. Yeah. Afterwards, when the, your sense organs or sense sources start to develop, then that becomes the sixth link. So it, you know, they're, they're just, when we talk about different stages of development, we are just mentally uh, dividing things up. Yeah, it isn't like there's a stage of development out there in concrete. It's like there's all this stuff and we're just saying, okay, let's call this part by one name and this part by another name and so on. Do the aggregates become the six sense sources? No. Like no. Yeah. The, it's, you, still have the, you still have the five aggregates. But when they're talking about the development in a new life, they call the five aggregates at one point name and form. 
And then the next point, they, they say the, the six sense sources, which don't include all the aggregates, but they're not saying that the aggregates disappear. They're just emphasizing that, you know, now instead of just the, the rudimentary pres, uh, presence of the aggregates, now the child is able to perceive external objects. Okay, make some sense now. Yeah. That's what can be very confusing about studying these links, you know, exactly what you pointed out, because if one link causes the other, then you kind of think, well, well this must cease to produce that, but that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. No, it's just talking about pointing out different aspects of development either the biological development or when we cognize objects, what happens, the stages of, of cog- cognizing an object. Okay, other questions? Yeah. You gave a few examples regarding attachment to the body and you had mentioned attachment to the mind. I was wondering if you could give some examples of how we can look for attachment to our mind. Oh, I'm so intelligent. <laughs> yeah. And I have so much mental sensitivity. Yeah. And I feel things very deeply. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My emotions are so deep and so important and I've got to express them and everybody's got to understand them. Oh, yes, intuitive. Yeah, which aggregate does that go in? (laughs) I have no idea either. I have no idea what the word intuition means. You don't find it in Buddhism. You don't find the word intuition and you don't find the word justice. Sit on that one for a while. Okay, so, but yeah, I mean, we're attached to our mind, aren't we? Yeah, my mind's so sleepy, I wish it would wake up. Come on, wake up, yeah. My mind is foggy. My mind is brilliant. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we're very quite attached to our mind. Hmm? Interesting, the expression, you know, somebody's out of their mind. That can mean something good and that can mean something bad, can't it? You know, he's angry, out of his mind. He's out of his mind with excitement and delight. Yeah. What does out of your mind mean? We all know what it means, but what does it mean? (laughs) You know, somebody's out of their mind. He's out of their mind. You know, they're out of their minds. Yeah. They think January 6th didn't happen, that it was any old day. They're out of their minds. They think there was an insurrection on January 6th. What in the world are they talking about? (laughs) It's interesting, isn't it? My ideas, my opinions, 
I'm very attached to those, right? My ideas are always right. My opinions are always the best ones. Yeah. My identity, yes. Based on my body and my mind. Or my personality, whatever personality means. Yeah, what does personality mean? What's a personality? Yeah, these are the kind of questions, you know, that for me, Buddhism makes me ask, you know. Because we always talk, oh, somebody has this kind of personality. They have this kind of temperament. What's a temperament? What's a personality? You had a question? When can you talk about human life? This is a controversy, a big oh, controversy. Yeah. And I'm curious because many friends talk about this, no? According to Buddhism, when you can talk about that there is a human life. I think Buddhists would agree there is human life. I mean, we're human life. The, aren't in we? the first moment with the yeah. things, or you need to. To have a conscious, there has to be consciousness. There has to be the sperm, the egg, and the consciousness that are conjoined. Yeah. When exactly they conjoin, it's not really sure. Okay. It's usually uh, they say, well, the first moment that 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 is conception when the. The sperm, egg, and consciousness join. But science says conception is just when the sperm and egg join. Yeah, so scientific definition of conception and Buddhist definition of conception are different. Yeah, and, you know, when exactly does it join? Before the fertilized egg attaches to, to the womb? or after, you know, and in vitro, uh, fertilization, in vitro, what do they call it, fertilization, yeah, then when in the world does the consciousness end? And if they freeze the eggs, is there a consciousness in the frozen egg? And does that consciousness feel cold? (laughs) Yeah, does it have tactile sensation, you know? At that point, does it feel cold? Is it angry because it's frozen? Or does it like being frozen? Yeah, these, these are questions for people with psychic powers. <laughs> yeah, you know, not the scientists can't answer them even. Yeah, but yeah, there's human life. Now, you know, when exactly in that whole developmental process it, it starts, it's very difficult to say. Buddhists tend to think it starts early on. Yeah? Yeah. So then abortion becomes quite a, a, a difficult question. Okay. So when people ask me, I say I am pro-life and pro-choice. Yeah. And pro-choice and pro-life. I go, what? Are you schizophrenic? No. 
Last week, we talked about the mere eye carrying the karmic seeds right, mm. from life to life. How does that relate to terms like, you know, we also talk about a specific eye or a general eye to explain the process of rebirth. Yeah. Well, each rebirth ha um, has a specific eye. The general eye is the one that includes all of the rebirths. Okay. But the specific eye is in each rebirth. And then does the general eye carry the karmic seeds? Yeah. Oh, okay, so it's similar to the mirror eye when the mirror yeah. eye is used in that way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mirror eye and, and general eye are, mean the same thing. Yeah. I have one question myself, and there's a few online. Um, my question kind of flows on from the one just asked. Um, going back to what you covered last week, um, on page 169, it says, although the mere eye carries the karmic seeds over a long period of time, the mental consciousness carries them temporarily. Mm -hmm. If the mere eye is carrying, the mere eye is a person, it's not a consciousness, and that's carrying the karmic seeds over a long period, then why does the mental consciousness have to get involved in carrying the seeds? What's the basis of designation of the eye? The body and mind. Yeah, what's the subtle basis of designation when there's no body? Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, and then a few online. Um, someone asks, what is, what is someone who is unable to feel pain? Um, so someone is, who is unable to feel pain, yeah. is that due to, and it's due to a medical condition, is that due to the neurons or is it due to the consciousness? You got me. Yeah. This, I don't, what do scientists say? They would say something has to do with the neurons. Yeah. Yeah. Buddhists would say that, you know, has to do with the person's karma. Yeah. And, I mean, Buddhists do talk about the body and mind relate to each other. Yeah. So if they don't relate to each other properly, then, yeah like some people who don't feel pain. In Buddhism, when we request inspiration from the Buddhas, how is that inspiration transmitted? Is it consciousness, or is requesting inspiration simply like saying, please continue to teach me? I think there's little sparkles, <laughs> you know, that kind of fall down from the sky and go inside you and you feel all tingly. Um, I would say, uh, you know, when we talk about blessings or whatever, that they would be, a, 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 it actually means transforming into magnificence. I would say that they're neither form nor consciousness. They would be an abstract composite. Yeah. But those sprinkles are really pretty. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Someone's asking for you to please explain again the point on the phys the point about the physical body experiences the pain, but when the pain feeling actually comes from the mind and not the body. Well, this is a question, okay, for people to investigate in your meditation. What is the pain and where is it? And what experience is it? You know, because we say my stomach hurts, 
But, you know, does, your, does the stomach hurt? There has to be consciousness there. Yeah? And even, you know, I, it would, even from the scientific viewpoint, does your stomach hurt or something, you know, certain aspect of your brain, something's firing? So you, which is called pain or pleasure? Is it the neutrons that, that are firing, that that's the pain or not, that's the pleasure? Because from science, everything is physical. Or is, you know, because common language, the pain or pleasure is in the part of the body, you know, that we're something, I can't say that feels it because this is our discussion, where is the feeling? Yeah. So, you know, when your stomach hurts or your stomach feels good, yeah, stomach's here, brain's up there. Where's the feeling? And what's feeling? What is the feeling? Yeah. Yeah, when you're hungry, your brain doesn't feel hungry. But your your stomach can't feel hungry without the brain. And neither the brain nor the stomach can feel hungry without a mind. So, I am not a Buddha. I cannot answer these questions. Okay. Last question. Yeah? What exists of the karmic seed between the causal consciousness and the resultant consciousness? What do you because, mean? What because the, you know, the consciousness you know, carries the karmic seed, or the mere eye carries the karmic seed. Yeah. But between the causal consciousness... And the, and the result, the, ca- the, the cause, it's, it's a mental continuum or the mere eye that carries it. It's the continuity. Yeah, it isn't, you have a causal consciousness here. Okay, there's a mental consciousness there. Then there's however long your lifespan is, minus two moments where there's nothing. And then there's a, Oh, actually, the whole rest of your life, there's nothing. And then the first moment of your next consciousness, consciousness pops up again. No, there's a a continuity. They're just designating for the sake of explaining this. They're pointing out this moment and this moment. It doesn't mean the karma vanishes in between or the consciousness vanishes in between. Okay. Yeah, so this whole thing of the 12 links, very often they're pointing out specific moments to emphasize those, okay? And sometimes, too, like when we get into craving, yeah, they'll talk about craving and how it ripens the karma, and then they'll talk about different kind of craving that has nothing to do with ripening karma, and you're going, why is this... Explained under craving. You're talking about it here, and then you give that explanation of the same thing, and they don't mix together. There's no problem. In this context, it means this. In that context, it means that. Okay. 
is it correct to say that the that karmic seed that's deposited on the causal consciousness doesn't exist between those two? No, of course of not. Of course, the the karmic seed exists. What you think the karmic seed is here, and then it goes out of existence, and then it pops up again. But how could it? I guess that's the question. How does it endure through that time period? How does your consciousness endure? How but, do you endure? But those are different moments. How does moments. a river? <laughs> yes. What one moment causes the next moment. How does a river flow? Yeah. How does anything exist? One moment causes the next moment, causes the next moment. Yeah. I mean, how does the thermos exist? Just, you know, what, moment one of the thermos go entirely out of existence, and then moment two is a totally new thermos, and there's no continuity between them. And where do you draw the line between moment one and moment two? Yeah, when you're looking, yeah, we all say, oh, the seed produces a sprout. Yeah, can you tell me what moment the seed stops being a seed and produces a sprout? Yeah? What moment are you going to say, that right down that middle? <laughs> here it's a seed, here it's a sprout. It's, I mean, this is what I thought about when I went to Israel and was on a kibbutz that was on the border between Israel and Jordan. Okay? It was right on the border. There was a no man's land in between, but I'm not sure who the no man's land, which country possessed the no man's land. But you look at it, let you know, like, okay, where exactly is the difference between Israel and Jordan? Where? You know, and if a grain of sand blows from Israel into Jordan, then what? Here it's Israel, then it goes there and it's Jordan. Oh my God. Does it cease when it's, when it's, the wind is blowing it across into Jordan? Does it, is there a moment where it ceases being Israel and it becomes <laughs> Jordan? Or does the moment, does the grain of sand cease as it's flying from Israel to Jordan? Yeah? Did you cease between yesterday and today? But yesterday was gone and over and today is today and it's happening. Yeah? The two aren't the same. Yeah, where did you exist between yesterday and today? <laughs> it's very different to talk about physical things versus mental things. Yeah, okay. Right? But you you as a person, okay, you're an abstract phenomena. Sorry to break that news to you. <laughs> okay. You're an abstract phenomena. Where did you exist between yesterday and today?
Yeah? What about, when actually is the difference between yesterday and today? Is it exactly at midnight, or is it the split second after midnight that becomes the next day? When is the end of today? Is it 11.59, the square root of two, because it (laughs) never ends? Yeah. And, you know, when is it going to become tomorrow? Okay. Do you remember the math puzzle? Okay. I love math puzzles. Somebody's shooting an arrow. Yeah. So the arrow goes halfway. Then it goes another halfway. Then another halfway. And another halfway. And another halfway. And there's infinite halfways. So it should never hit the target. But somehow it hits the target. But that's totally illogical. It can't hit the target. It keeps on going just halfway. Yeah. We can abolish all murder sentences. Sentences. Nobody can can be convicted of murder because, you know, the bullet or whatever it is never hits the person. So they never get murdered. It's always half, 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 half. Okay? Okay, I think we better stop. (laughs) 